Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. We will be discussing impulsivity today and impulse control. Um, is it something that uh, we only experience in early age and we get better at? Or do we sometimes find that we have uh, stable impulsivity throughout our lives? And what can we do about it? And it actually makes a big deal uh, in investing. We often are faced with situations where maybe a stock that we like a lot is down for one reason or another. And uh, do we hold off and can, can we, as long as the issue that's clouding the stock uh, is present, it will probably continue to be under pressure. Do we have the willpower to keep ourselves from buying too early? You know, can we, can we wait? Can we maintain uh, the discipline to take something off, even though uh, we are very familiar with it and we like it a lot, uh, but it's going against us? Do we have that uh, discipline and willpower to be able to act. Right. And willpower really comes about from delaying gratification. So there's some possible reward available right now. If we can hold off from um, grabbing that reward, more may come later. So we'll start this uh, story back in preschool um, in the 1960s with the work of Walter Michelle and his colleagues. And what they were doing is what's affectionately known as the marshmallow test uh, to uh, people in the lay public. Um, what the actual truth of this test was is you would have a preschool age child um, come into a lab room with you and uh, you would basically offer them a treat and it would be physically available right in front of them. It could be a marshmallow, it could be a cookie, um, whatever their favorite treat was. Um, and what you would say to that child is, I'm going to leave the room for five minutes. If you can avoid eating that particular treat, I'm going to give you two when I return. And so they would leave and they would record these children during that uh, period in which they had to try to delay gratification to get two marshmallows instead of one. Uh, some were uh, very successful and very disciplined and simply were able to wait it out, got their two treats at the end of the five minutes. Others ate the treats immediately and could show no real delayed gratification. And yet others would clearly struggle uh, doing things like sitting on their hands and talking to themselves and reminding themselves not to eat it. Um, and uh, all of these interesting sort of variations in between uh, very low ability and very high ability to delay gratification. They then followed these children through their lives and found that those who had uh, struggles delaying gratification often developed challenges in life. Um, you could imagine them having a little bit of a harder time in school focusing and paying attention and exerting discipline. Some of them had more challenges with things like substance abuse uh, in their futures. And uh, in general, we think of it as a very good thing to be able to exert discipline, delay gratification. The realities are that um, decades later, these children still showed the mark of what they had done in preschool. So this was some incredible work by BJ Casing and her, and her colleagues looking at uh, the marshmallow children now in their 40s. And this is work from about 10 years ago where they uh, brought them back into lab environments and had them do a simple delay gratification, um, press a button or withhold pressing a button. Children who had difficult times with the delay of gratification 
had a harder time avoiding these button presses on this task as adults decades later. So that suggests that maybe there is a stable lifetime pattern to this delayed gratification ability. Uh, they also did brain imaging with these uh, individuals, finding that areas of the basal ganglia responsive to rewards were more active in those who couldn't delay gratification, whereas some of these frontal lobe circuits that are very tuned toward uh, wait to get rewards later were, were more active in the um, those that could show delay. So what that sets us up with is a fascinating nature and nurture sort of uh, debate. Um, do we have a a stable tendency through life to uh, always grab the marshmallow when it's available or withhold it, or is there some plasticity? I think the answer lies somewhere in the middle that uh, we may have some uh, tendencies that are with us, some biases, if you will, that are kind of pre-baked into our system. But we, of course, have a lot of plasticity within our brain and can change behaviors. And so this episode is going to be about how we do that, how it works out in our real lives, and what are some strategies we can do to appropriately um, act when we should. I'm, I'm definitely one that probably would have not been able to hold off. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not even a huge fan of marshmallows, but uh, uh, I can speak from some experience that uh, a lot of times finding methodologies to cope with our impulsive behavior uh, is critical uh, to be able to under, uh, overcome them. Uh, some people are naturally less impulsive than others, but uh, there are uh, processes that can be put in place uh, to help us train and almost like a Skinner-like method uh, to develop habits to overcome what we're naturally inclined to do. Right. And one of the things that occurs to me uh, is try to try to make your better decisions earlier in the day or your more important decisions. Most likely people are going to have more resolve early in the day. And this is true uh, just based on our circadian rhythms where um, satiated on sleep, you know, our alertness tends to be pretty high. Um, these are the conditions that allow us to delay gratification. As the day wears on and we become more fatigued, tired, we've made more decisions, we sometimes uh, succumb to what's known as decision fatigue, which we've done a previous podcast episode on, in which we just have less resolve. And uh, this is usually an effect of just becoming tired and having taxed our system for uh, a significant part of the day. So make those uh, important financial and life decisions earlier in the day when you have more resolve. Well, and then, of course, there can be uh, training that you can do uh, to develop a habit. If you can develop a habit over time, uh, then you can avoid what you would normally be inclined to do. Uh, and, and what you're talking about with respect to uh, coping with issues that you need to have discipline on early in the day, that's when you're using uh, your, your focused attention. Uh, but if you can get something to a point where it's automatic, I wake up every day and I go on a walk. It's, there's, I have really no choice in the matter anymore. I've, I have done it over and over and over again, and it's become part of the daily pattern that I uh, engage in. But I wouldn't necessarily be naturally inclined to do that if I wasn't doing it already. It's an excellent practice, and, and sleep researchers will um, will back that sort of idea that it's it's wise to exercise early in the day uh, when you have a lot of resolve. You're more likely to follow through on it, and also you get uh, early daylight, which helps to uh, get your system engaged. So another tip I heard recently. Um, in a talk by Russell Foster, who's a sleep expert from the UK, is that uh, if you go to the gym, you should try to uh, 
go on a, a like an elliptical machine that's closest to the window and thereby get a lot of uh, you know, natural light influence to your system, uh, which further boosts your level of arousal. So um, I like what you said about how it's you're almost helpless to avoid exercising now. That's when you've really built a habit. Um, people who are in the um, habit formation research community often talk of um, about probably two months worth of consistent effort without breaking pattern will will earn you a habit. And what that looks like is it becomes actually more uncomfortable to break the habits than um, than to to not follow through. And so in the case of exercising, it uh, it's clear that that's going to have benefits. It's also clear it's hard to do. And so you really have to work on forging that habit through discipline. Sometimes we need help. Sometimes we can engage others to assist us in developing habitual or programmed response. Uh, one extreme example, of course, is the military. Uh, they train people to uh, make decisions and to take actions under enemy fire. You know, it's not natural for somebody to run towards an enemy that is shooting at you. Uh, every natural instinct that we have programmed within our bodies would resist that. But if you've been trained under controlled circumstances uh, to follow orders and, you know, you, you know to do that, uh, then, uh, you know, you, you, will, you will take those actions or you can be trained to take those actions, which requires a tremendous amount of discipline which is, of course, cultivated in that military environment. Right. I'm recalling an interview with uh, the journalist and writer Sebastian Younger, who has done a lot of work with military populations embedded in certain circumstances. And he was describing how there was a uh, very uh, threatening battle that was looming in this one um, this one fortified position. And it was a small number of troops that were about to face a large number of people. And uh, they were collecting stress responses in these uh, soldiers, and they actually dropped in their stress response as the conflict grew nearer. In a sense, it was because they could rely on their training. They, they were essentially going to the automatic mode um, when most people would be having cortisol through the roof and extremely panicked, um, they were actually calming down because now it was time to engage their training because they had earned that habit through repetition. Right. It's uncertainty and not having a, a directed path in which you're uh, supposed to be on where you're having to make uh, to engage your prefrontal cortex to go and make a decision. Uh, that can be something that can be very difficult. But if you have training to fall back on where it is automatic, then uh, you, you, know, you, you don't have that uncertainty to cloud uh, the path forward. You know, key to getting that training is, is to really begin forming the habit. And that's often the, the trick. That's the stumbling block. How do you start to get there? <laughs> and that's not so much engaging the, the prefrontal cortex, um, right? Yeah. It, but I think the, it's not just from within. Right. We can use external aids, uh, nudges, if you will. So uh, Richard Thaler and Cass Sudenstein have this excellent book called Nudge, which is all about using environmental aids to help you in those behaviors. So a simple example of a nudge, which they talked about, was um, if you're running a food counter, put the healthier items at eye level and put the junk foods kind of at a lower level. And if you do that, you're just more likely to notice the, uh, the, the sort of the default becomes to maybe choose the healthier option. So that's a simple way of constructing an environmental context that's going to help you to achieve a better outcome. Uh, with exercise, since we've talked about that a number of times, I'm reminded of a, another very good tip is to have an exercise partner 
who will basically make you more accountable. So you may skip the uh, workout today if it's only you who's going to be uh, on the line. But if, if someone else is relying on you, you're actually just a little bit more likely not to want to let that person down. And they're also there to um, basically help coach you and make it a little bit more, more rewarding. So having an exercise partner can be quite helpful. I did that early in my uh, life exercising, and it had enormous benefits and really got the habit going for me. Um, another tip I've heard from Marilyn Vosavant, who's um, an advice columnist, on such matters, she had suggested go to the gym, um, and if you don't like it and you're really not feeling it up to it that day, take five minutes of workout and then you can leave. <laughs> and if you give yourself that permission to leave, it's just enough to maybe get you over the hump. And then most often you're going to follow through, of course, since you're already there and go through the workout. So those are just a couple of little environmental nudges that can help to pay off, um, especially if you're one of those high uh, impulsive, you know, sort of low ability to delay individuals. Yeah. I, and I think, in fact, with the marshmallow test, weren't there a number of strategies that some of the kids would employ to, you know, prevent themselves from eating the... Oh, yeah. They would look the other direction, you know, turn around in their chair. And that's an environmental nudge, right? It just kind of takes away the immediate sensory um, cues that that are targeting up your appetite and, and and uh, so, so they, uh, you know, people are very flexible in that regard, and um, you can use those strategies to help yourself. One of the other things that uh, we wanted to cover in this podcast is um, the trade-off between passion and discipline. And uh, we think about this a lot with things like parenting. How do we encourage our, our kids to, um, you know, follow their passion yet develop enough grit and discipline that they can muscle through the difficult times in order to have better outcomes. Yeah, it's always a distinction and it's easy to confuse one for the other. Uh, if, for instance, you have something that you're very passionate about, can be very focused, uh, if you, act you actually enjoy doing it and finding those things that you enjoy doing, I think is one of the secrets to success in life. Uh, but invariably, we're going to have things that come up in our lives that require a, that we don't want to do that, that are tedious, uh, but we have to be able to overcome those issues in order to get to those things that we do enjoy. And it's an evolving process. I've, I remember a statistic I'd heard that um, those who enter medical school um, tend to follow through if they make it to year two. So that first year is the toughest and the highest likelihood of dropout. If you can muscle through it, you know, get through all the uh, the cramming and the the hard hours and the the rigor of it, you will generally be able to make it through. So that might be a case where those people that have made it through that first year without dropping out sort of have have cultivated um, some habits and now they have more resilience. I'm reminded in my own career of my my. One of my difficult years was the first year of graduate school where I had moved from an undergraduate college environment, um, big fish, small pond at that point, to, to a large university with um, you know, a, a huge diversity of things. I was taking neuroanatomy and uh, really theoretical statistics at the same time and trying to figure out what in the world I was doing and getting my bearings. And uh, you do question yourself a lot. Like, is this for me? I, I don't, everyone seems so much smarter around me and I'm struggling to, to find my way. And that's when the discipline really becomes important. So I definitely had a passion for research. It's just that 
what I thought research was about wasn't what it was really about. You know, and it required kind of being the, the little fish growing in this much bigger pond. And by sticking to it and kind of forcing myself through, I would start to realize that there were hidden layers to all of that uh, challenging information. And now, I mean, on this podcast, I talk about neuroanatomy all the time. It's become a passion of mine. Um, it wouldn't be had I not just settled to, uh, you know, force myself to to make the, um, you know, pay the price and earn that knowledge, which uh, was difficult at the time. And I did employ a lot of those environmental nudges, you know, things like studying with a friend and uh, being accountable to someone else and you know, forcing myself to see the rewards at each point. And so um, I think that's what we all want. And, and what's what's kind of cool about that is our, it's not just following your passion. It's like the passion starts to change with you as you change. Sure. Uh, for me, one of the big uh, assists that I've found in my career is uh, if you can find the beauty and whatever it is that you're working on what's before you uh, if you can see the nuance if you can uh, appreciate how something may actually be interesting that a normally normally would seem quite dull and or mundane uh, and really with if you, if you think of something as simple as mopping a floor uh, there are techniques associated with doing that that could that are much better than others uh, and if you can find the Zen of mopping right of doing it in a very excellent way, uh, then you can find fulfillment in doing the job well. Now, there's a lot of uh, stretch there, but nonetheless, if you can take that thing that is mundane or difficult uh, to apply yourself to and find the game, find the inter, the, you know, the the uh, the motivational factor that's within it that makes it interesting or challenging. Uh, then you may be able to find fulfillment there. And what was tedious before uh, and that required a lot of focus can then become something uh, that you're naturally inclined to be able to do. Right. And I'm reminded of another exercise example. I have enjoyed hiking for a lot of my life, but I've never been an extreme hiker doing, you know, just 10 miles a day for days on end. And uh, my sons and I had a chance to do the Philmont hike in northern New Mexico and to prep for Philmont, which is about 75 miles over the course of 11 days, you really have to get in pretty good shape. And in the early going, I was I was really questioning the wisdom of this decision because I would really be just sore. And, you know, it was just too much work and hiking. But over time, I started to realize, uh, you know, I was getting in better shape doing it. And then I came to really enjoy it. And like like a lot of this mental fatigue stuff, I was talking with one of the other guys on this hike and I was saying, we never get any downtime. You know, we're either hiking or, or we're cooking or we're, we're trying to get to sleep. And he pointed out, you know, that the walking is the downtime. And once I realized that, I started to have that kind of experience where it had its own rewards. Like I could kind of let my mind wander, just like your mopping example. And suddenly um, I, it was actually quite uh, calming. And I had turned something very difficult into something that was actually quite rewarding and and I would have a passion for, it. and I'd be, I'd be up for doing that kind of experience again, just because I had pushed through the pain and kind of uh, come out the other side. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. It reminds me, uh, when I was in college, I was in the Corps of Cadets at A and M, and I was a candidate for the Fish Drill Team, which is an organization that I, I don't, I don't, I don't believe they exist anymore. But uh, basically, it was a very intense uh, 
you know, drill uh, uh, process that we went through uh, where you had synchronized uh, movement with what we would call your, your weapon, which is a, a, a rifle uh, that was a drill. It's basically a dummy weapon. Uh, but you would do everything synchronous and in, in, in synchronous with everyone else that's within what's called the block. And uh, there was a lot of repetition associated with it uh, and uh, a lot of coordination. But you got to the point where you would go through a routine over and over and over again to the point where there was no longer any thinking associated with it. It was just automatic. And literally, I would say it was almost like having an out-of-body experience where you're moving in coordination with a group of other individuals uh, without any thought whatsoever. It was just purely programmed. Uh, and it was a, you know, a very liberating, almost meditative experience. Incredible. Yeah. So I mean, that's, that's another great example where something... It's like we have to go through this learning process where uh, if we can learn a complex skill to automaticity, we find that it's uh, remarkably enjoyable. And so something that had been just uh, murderous originally actually completely reverses. And so I, that's kind of what this whole topic is about. I mean, don't you? Uh, it's not just as straightforward as you're a low delay person or a high delay person. I think we all have those capacities. Um, another important thing to keep in mind, and this is kind of a fun note to end on, is uh, people always think of the high delay kids that didn't eat the marshmallow and got to as being like, you know, the 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 ones you'd want to be. You'd want to be that 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 kind of a person. Um, but the realities weren't that simple. Uh, while a lot of the high delay kids ended up having successful careers. Um, some of the, the quickest to eat the marshmallow actually had the most meteoric success later in life. So maybe they were impulsive or maybe their strategy was just, I'm not that bothered about two. I'll, eat, I'll take the one right now, right? <laughs> There's some value in, in that kind of strategy. So um, we can't and probably shouldn't just divide people based on their, their delay levels. It's kind of how you play to your strengths. And so I think this is another important thing to do is just talk to other people about uh, what they see as things that you're good at and, um, you know, try to encourage others to, to follow their strengths. And you might have, uh, you can build a team of kind of diverse individuals that have different skill sets and maybe different levels of delay in the marshmallow test. And I'd be, I'd like to be on that team rather than a, a full on delay team, because likely you'd have more creativity and problem solving if you have people with different capacities in your. Yeah. And as it ties back to investing, uh, there's always going to be times when we're implementing these processes that we put into place uh, where we want to do something that's not consistent with the process because it feels feels right. Uh, like, for instance, if we, if we have a uh, position that we put on and we've sized it in such a way where we can suffer a certain loss uh, because it's much smaller, uh, but that loss is still painful, then uh, we may feel compelled to, to take it off. But really what we you know we considered that beforehand we sized it appropriately uh and we should sit through the pain or conversely we have a position that was larger and it's going against us and we have a stop loss that we've decided there's going to be a point where we reduce the size of the position that's we another to, good image we have to be we have to be disciplined uh and apply it and so sometimes we're going to have to think of ways uh that will help us in the heat of the moment and i think having that um 
diversity of skills or perspectives helps you avoid groupthink biases as well, which can be quite debilitating. We talked about groupthink in uh, an episode last year, and um, I'm reminded that you know you really don't want to all be always on the same page, or else you start to lock in on certain group-based biases and then reinforce them together. So um, that probably seems like a uh, something we always have to work on, try to continue to get our own performance up as well as make uh, better use of the skill sets of those around. I think that ties it up uh, pretty well, unless you have something else to add. I'm getting hungry for a marshmallow. Oh, Let's yeah. head out of here. Let's do it. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.